0: Were the founding fathers of America a Christian, or were they just deists? I have a special guest with me on today's episode, and we're going to think through these questions, and perhaps the most interesting question of them all, was George Washington a Christian? If you're interested in these questions, stay tuned. This is The Bible Sojourner, where we discuss issues related to the Bible, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Shalom and welcome. Thanks for joining. Well, I'm really excited today. For today's episode, we have Dr. Greg Frazier with us. Dr. Frazier is a teacher professor at the Masters University in Santa Clarita, California. He has coordinated the political studies program at TMU and he has a special relationship with my wife and i since we went to masters we feel a close affinity with him and my wife especially played on the masters basketball team and one of the cool things about dr frazier i'll let him introduce himself a little bit in a second but i one of the things i think that was the coolest thing in the world was that he and a couple of his friends from the faculty would always go to the games and cheer on the women's basketball team and the men's basketball team. It was just so cool to see. There was a lot of camaraderie there. That was a lot of fun. So without further ado, I just want to say, uh, Greg, Professor Fraser, thank you for joining us and welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Pete. You can call me Greg, that's okay.
0: All right, well, I I appreciate that. I appreciate that. No, I'm excited for the topic ahead of us today. Uh, We're going to be talking a little bit about America's history. And before we do that though, I'm just curious about yourself, how you got into politics and studying history. How, is this just something you're born with a special gene, or how did this all come about?
2: Well, actually, um,
1: as I was growing up, I was always interested in history. Um, in my junior high, I won the junior high history award two years in a row. Um, and uh, so from the very beginning, I was interested in history, read a lot of history, um, and then when I came to the college, uh, which I, I attended the Masters University when it was Los Angeles Baptist College, and um, considered five different majors, and then finally settled on majoring in history. And um, so that's when I really sort of got into um, history. And then when I did my master's degree, I did it in political science. And then when they wanted to start uh, a political studies major here at the university, they called me and uh, asked me to start it. And uh, so then I got my PhD also in political science. So I have degrees in history and, and political science and most of my work, uh, to the extent that I had a choice, uh, when I was doing my master's degree and in, in doctoral work, uh, it was the intersection of politics and history. And um, in particular, the American founding, that's where where my particular focus is and has been. Both of my books are on the founding uh, period and it's just something that I find fascinating and interesting. And uh, I also think my interest accelerated once I saw that a lot of people were being led down the wrong path and someone needed to write a book. And so I decided it, Might as well be me. Now you're talking about
0: I wanna I wanna tell people because you've written these two books which are really well done. And I actually just learned about the second one. I don't I can't believe I didn't didn't know about this, but the most recent one in 2018. I'm just making sure I got the name right here. So God Against the Revolution. That was the most recent one you wrote, correct? Right. Yeah. And so I'm that's on my list to to research and read now. So you've piqued my interest on that one. And the first book that you wrote back in 2012, I believe, was when it was first published, is the one that I was most familiar with, and that's the religious beliefs of America's founders, right. and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm I'm really really excited. Uh, I'm excited that you're excited about this and that you've put so much study in it because I think well at least I mean I don't have a large a large. group of years to look back and compare historical time periods or anything like that. But it seems to me over the last few years, I've seen a growing concern among those who are conservatives, especially Christians, about wanting to return to Christian roots, saying, hey, America was founded by Christians. Now we've kind of turned the corner. And it seems to me that you have other people on the left side of things who are arguing no the Christian founders were, were Deists they weren't Christians and so there's a big argument there and and so in full disclosure one of the one of the best uh, lectures I've ever heard on it was actually your lecture on uh, Sundays in July if people are interested in more information on on this Grace Community Church where Doctor Fraser is serves as a deacon and teaches there as well uh, they have a kind of a ministry on Sundays at July, they call it. And it's, they put all of their Sunday lessons that happened during the month of July on a podcast platform. And so you can access that and listen to it. And so he had given a lecture on the religious founding fathers. And I realized, and shamefully, I might, I might add, I realized that this was actually a lot more complex and a little more uh convoluted than i thought. I thought that it was pretty straightforward. Adventures in Odyssey told me that the religious founding fathers were Christians, but you've obviously done a lot more research on this issue. So, how should we be thinking about this?
1: Well, first of all, you shouldn't be feeling shameful because uh again, the, the vast majority of what uh, evangelical, especially conservative evangelical Christians are exposed to is the notion that America was founded as a Christian nation um so basically you as you as you pointed out there's the right view the conservative view which is that the founding fathers are mostly christians uh, the country is founded by christians to be a christian nation the constitution was influenced by the bible or based on the bible and so on and then on the left you have um the secularist notion that the founding fathers were all deists or all rank secularists, if not deists, and they wanted a wall of separation between church and state and, no, and have uh, religion have no impact in the public sphere, et cetera. And I wrote the book because I think both sides are wrong. I think both the right and the left are wrong. Um, and so that's why I did the research, which, by the way, it, the book is a culmination of more than 20 years of research um, on this and and reading a lot of stuff. And so I came up actually with, the, with another term for a position sort of in the middle, uh, which I call theistic rationalism. And I argue that the key founders, now one of, here's an important distinction. Too often people talking about it, especially on the Christian America side, lump all the founders together and they just talk about the founders, the founders, the founders did this, the founders said this, the founders believed this. But if you just think about it logically, um, can you say that about an entire population of politicians today? Can you just say, Congress says or believes or politicians believe? That's a good point. Um, these guys were individuals and they all had their own backgrounds, their own training, their own religious beliefs, etc. cetera. They weren't just a lump sum. The only thing you can legitimately say about them collectively, or one of the few things, is what's in the Constitution, because that's what they wrote together. Otherwise, you have to deal with them as individuals. And um, so what I did was look at the arguably the eight most important founders. That's what my book, The Religious Beliefs of America's Founders, is based on, a study of the religious beliefs of the eight key founders, as I call them. Um which maybe I can bring up the the slide to Yeah and do that and, yet.
0: Yeah, let's bring that up and uh, maybe while you're while you're thinking, one one of the questions I would have too on that is how, how do you determine what a founding father is? Like why why are these eight considered so yeah, prominent? On slide. Okay, perfect. So
1: let me pull this up and um so here's the basis I, I went by. Who are the most influential uh persons concerning the founding documents, the, the because religious beliefs come in are a matter of ideas, and ideas shape everything. And so, who influenced the ideas that the country is founded upon? And that's the two founding documents: the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. Who were the most influential people on those documents? So you you end up with with the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the original draft, and then John Adams and Benjamin Franklin were also on the committee. And made some changes and so forth. So you've got them. And then uh, Franklin, of course, is also part of the Constitution, but not very influential. And then individuals who are really influential concerning the US Constitution, James Madison, who's generally known as the father of the Constitution, although that's not true. That would actually should be Governor Morris, who's on the list here that no one's ever heard of before. But James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, Governor Morris, and James Wilson. Madison, Morris, and Wilson were most influential on the Constitution, arguably. Hamilton also had significant influence on the Constitution and then also in putting it into effect. And then Washington, of course, is the 500 pound gorilla in the room and uh, chaired the the Constitutional Convention and, of course, is the first president putting it into, into effect and so on. So these are the people that I thought were. Uh, the eight most important, the key American founders, uh, and that, and you could debate about that. I was at the National Archives in Washington D.C., where they display the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and they have these little nodules all around the room. And uh, of the first eight nodules that they, at each of the nodules, highlights a founder. And of the first eight nodules, seven of them were seven of my people. Hmm. So. Uh, and I and I didn't just pick this randomly either. I looked at what various historians say and so on and so forth. So anyway, these are the people that I, I think were arguably most influential in terms of ideas. And that's where religion matters. Um, so that's the basis on which I, I chose these people.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. And so I guess... I know you said you said you kind of think that people on the right and on the left are are both wrong, and so you've kind of created a middle ground. So you want to kind of well, first of all, I guess why why is it? It seems like this this argument is so heated a lot of times, and so why do you think this is always in our public discourse? I mean, you read a history book; it seems to be, especially in the Christian homeschool curriculum and things like that. A lot of times you'll have You know very adamant statements made about these founding fathers trying to claim them for christianity and then on the other side same thing why is it such a big debate and then i guess maybe could you walk us through some evidence on how we should think through it and how we can even evaluate these individuals
1: yeah i i do my presentation i talk about basically four four reasons that the christian america idea is popular the first one is those who promote it are not historians. Uh, the people who write all the books and do the and and do tours and all of that kind of stuff—they aren't historians. They're they're self-proclaimed historians. Um, but most of the people who write books about it, some of them are, don't have really much of any credentials. But some of them are lawyers. And what's a what's a lawyer's job? Is a lawyer's job. To present both sides of the argument and treat everything fairly and equally, or is the lawyer's job to grab one side and and that and only push the one side, and that's way the way you get it from uh, those who are lawyers, and then others who write about it are pastors, and the pastors are just taking information from other people. They're not historians. They don't go and study it, and so they they hear okay, this guy says this, and so they just latch on to it. So that's a lot of it. There are a couple of individuals who um, frankly make a lot of money off of off of it and um, so that's part of the issue secondly human nature seems to seems to lead us to want to believe that our nation is specially blessed by God hmm. you know the Japanese when they bombed Pearl Harbor did it on behalf of their god emperor uh, the Romans believed that that they were specially blessed by the gods. And so they actually cut out the minute man, the middleman, and made their emperors gods themselves. Same thing with the Egyptians. And you go through great civilizations throughout American history, and they always believe that the god that God or the gods has specially chosen them and specially blessed them. And I would argue, people think I don't like America because of this is I I always start my classes with with students that tell them, look. I am so blessed to have been born in the United States of America. I I there's not another country in the world I would want to live in. Uh I feel completely blessed. I think the United States is the greatest country in the history of the world. I think the American political system is the greatest ever, ever devised. But it was devised by men, not by God. And so it's not perfect, uh, but it is the best. And I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. So I fully embrace that aspect, but I don't feel a need. To conclude from that, that the United States is somehow especially blessed by God. Sparta had one of the worst, most horrendous regimes in world history, and they lasted 800 years. Hmm. Uh, And uh, people ask me often when I get done with things, you know, how long do you think America has? I said, I don't know, tomorrow, 100 years, 500 years? I don't know, because God doesn't do it on that basis. He has a plan that was devised before the foundation of the earth. And it goes; everything goes according to God's plan. So, I don't feel the need to believe that the nation was specially. I'm open to it, if I see evidence of that. First of all, I don't see any revelation about it. I don't see it in Malachi or in Revelation. Uh, I don't see any revelation about it. But I'm open to the evidence, and I was when I did my research. Um, but uh, so that's the second reason. A third reason. Is it's easier to call people back to something than it is to call them to something new and radical. Hmm. And biblical Christianity is radical. It's a radical, radically different way of life. It's a radically different way of looking at the world. You know, Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we need to renew our minds and think the way God wants us to think. That's radical stuff. But it's much easier to call people back to some supposed heritage. Of the past, um, And then thirdly, especially if, they, if it's the one they like, if, if they think it's the one they like. And then finally, pr- predominantly, I think what motivated it to begin with, that there, there, actually this has kind of gone and starts and stops throughout American history. People have kind of pushed this thing. But the most recent was, is because of frustration with public school history teaching. Hmm. People have been frustrated by what their kids are being taught in school which I'm frustrated frustrated with as well. It's just as wrong on the other side. And so people, I think, have this notion that we're going to play tug of war with public school history teachers. And you know, when you play tug of war, you got a, you got a rag in the middle and then you got people on both sides trying to get the rag to their side. And so if public school is pulling this way, then I'm going to pull this way and go this. But what I say is just teach the truth. Just teach the rag. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, and, and quit trying to pull things in one direction or another. So, uh, And the way this ends up happening is both those on the right and those on the left um, end up looking for snippets. They go in and they find something that looks good and they snip it out and they take it out of context and then they push it. Um, so a couple of the people involved in this, I call the king of ellipses. Uh, because they they cut things out. They take half of a sentence and cut the rest of it off. Or they take a, a phrase in the middle and, and cut off what's before it and what's after it. And both the right and the left do this, by the way. And if you do that, you can make the case that they were all deists. Or you can make the case that they were all Christians. Because my concept that I, that I termed theistic rationalism, um, is the notion that they, it, it's, a, it's a belief system that draws from Christianity and from natural religion, and they take what they, what they think is rational from Christianity, take what they think is rational from natural religion, discard the rest, and they piece it together to create their own belief system based on fundamentally reason, rationalism. And so if you read certain snippets, they sound like Christians because they do, they do hold some views in common with Christianity. If you read other snippets, they sound like deists or rank secularists because they have some views in common with that. But they don't buy into the whole picture because they find something irrational in both of them. And, uh, and so that's why I created this term, theistic rationalism, for the, what I think is their belief system.
0: Hmm. No, that... That's really helpful actually. And I, I would agree with you. I think that makes a lot of sense to me, just your explanation for why this is such a big deal for people. And I like the phrase I, I hadn't heard of it before. So that makes sense if you had uh, coined this term kind of theistic rationalism, but just to push back a little bit, cause I think people would want, I know people who are listening or watching this would say, now, wait a second, I've read the constitution. You know, I've read some of the some of the founding documents, and it seems like they're using religious language. It seems like they're like they're Christian. It seems like they're using that assumption behind their their worldview, if you will. So how do how do we know that they're not Christian? Like what what is the
2: evidence for that? Okay, so concerning the Constitution, um, if you If you look at the
1: Constitution, you won't find biblical terms for God. You find other than the word Creator, okay? But everybody believed in a Creator back then. The deists believed in a Creator too. There was before Darwin. So everybody believed there was a Creator. But you won't find biblical terms for God. You find what I call God words, um, you know, things like uh, divine hand, an author and so forth in the case of the constitution you have nature's god you have the supreme judge of the universe etc um and so what you've got there and and by the way we're religious okay so the fact that there's religious language and and talk of god etc shouldn't be surprising they were religious um but they created their own god essentially and their own religion you know, it, it's often said, um, well, I mean, the Bible says that, that um, God created man in his image. And my conclusion at the end of my book is that they returned the favor and created God in their image. Hmm. Um, and that's fundamentally what they did. So they were religious. And it's not surprising that there's talk of God and so forth. But Jefferson, who was a theistic rationalist, was also a very clever guy and he's trying to gain maximum support for the Declaration of Independence. So he writes the Declaration of Independence very strategically and cleverly with language that everybody can read their own system into it, which is why everybody embraced it, and everybody still does today. And on the left, they'll say, see, it's a deistic document or a rationalist document, and the Christians say, see, it's a Christian document. That's because Jefferson wrote it cleverly to make it appeal to everybody everybody can read their own view into it if you, if you don't just take it on its own and look at the basis on which he he said that he wrote it and he and he talked about the sources for it and it wasn't the bible hmm. and john adams who was also on the committee talked about the sources for it and it wasn't the bible and and so um, that, so people see what they want to see when they look at the the Constitution but mm-hmm. there's nothing specifically Christian in it that's mm-hmm. the key
0: wow yeah I think that's super helpful and I I remember you talking about that in a couple of your talks as well with regard to it's you know it, excuse me well-
1: I'm sorry I said the, the Constitution I meant the Declaration of Independence Oh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, but the yeah. Constitution is the same thing. You know, one of the big criticisms of the anti-federalists who opposed the Constitution was they called it a godless constitution because it doesn't mention God. Hmm. And it was the first nation, it was the first national founding document in I think in world history, certainly in Western civilization, that didn't mention God. Wow. And and so uh I mean that was a that was one of the reasons that the anti-federalists opposed the Constitution. So anyway, I'm sorry.
0: Hmm. No, that's that's a good clarification. I'm glad that you you added that. It's it's almost as if even back then people were politicking in many ways to try oh, to absolutely. create a broad umbrella that a lot of people would be comfortable fitting under.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. All that was critically important, and you have to do that. You're founding a nation. You right. have to get You have to get everybody on board with it. And yeah. only, and even by John Adams' account, only a third of the Americans supported the American Revolution. So they had wow. a lot of, they had a lot of uh, convincing to do to get everybody on board. And then the Constitution was very controversial. As I said, there was a major battle over its ratification. Hmm. Um, people today say, well, it's, you know, it's so excellent, which it is. I, again, I, I, say, I think it's the best Constitution in the history of the world. But there was a big fight over it. It took several months for it to get ratified. Uh, and it wasn't a done deal that it was going to be. So,
2: yeah, no,
0: that's that's super helpful and really good background to all this. Things aren't. Uh, it's just a good reminder, especially for me, and I'm sure for others, that just because somebody says something doesn't mean that that's the case. We need to we need to think about it critically and analytically. So, well, one of the things that I I really appreciate you bringing up in in some of your talks, and this is what you spend a lot of time talking about in your in your book, is is just about how there is significant evidence that some of these, well, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe even most of these founding fathers did not have a personal relationship with Christ. They didn't um, exercise genuine saving faith. And so I'd be curious uh, if you want to go through some examples of that. I know that you have a PowerPoint sometimes of walking through uh, some of these founding fathers and their some of the quotes that they that they talk about. And I think that'd just be helpful to to walk through some of their lives and communication just to see what
2: kind of people they are. Yeah uh, So So let's start um, with John Adams because,
1: Here's a person that both sides of the argument claims, OK? Uh, both sides of the argument say that this is, quote, one of our guys, so to speak. Um, and let's look at some of the things that Adams said. And, hit, and oh, let me just get to that. Let me back up for a second. I was trying to think of what I was going to say. That's why I was kind of stammering. And now I remember what I was going to say. Let me Let me talk about the evidence that I use for this. Because what people often do is they look at public pronouncements, they look at proclamations and things like that. Well, these guys, as you just alluded to a moment ago, were politicians and they knew how to make public pronouncements that said what the public wanted to see and the public wanted to hear, whether it was what they believed or not. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, it's clearly not. And the, so what I did was I focused on their diaries their journals and their personal correspondence with them, between themselves and with other people. Because I, my, every author has assumptions. They don't all tell you this, but every author has assumptions. And I lay out my assumptions in the beginning of the book. And one of my primary assumptions is that you learn more about what people really think by what they say in private than what they say in public. And I think that's demonstrably true. And so Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time reading their correspondence and their diary entries and their journal entries to get what they really believed, not what was put out publicly. So anyway, having that as a context, um, John Adams and and each of these eight theistic rationalists were Unitarians. They did not believe in the deity of Christ. Here's what what Adams said uh, about the deity of Christ in his diary. He referred to the deity of Jesus Christ and his satisfaction for the sins of man as absurdity. Now, satisfaction for the sins of man, that's the atonement. He doesn't Mm -hmm. believe in the deity of Christ or the atonement. And then later, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, years later, he said the Pythagorean, as well as the Platonic philosophers, probably concurred in the fabrication of the Christian trinity. He clearly does not believe it. And this is ironically, as I tell people, written on Christmas Day, if you look at it, is December Mm -hmm. 25th. But uh, why Pythagorean? Because Pythagorean theorem, it deals with triangles, right? So three sides. and So that's why he's throwing him in there. And then Platonic, we could talk about if you want to. But uh, Jefferson referred to Christianity as Platonic Christianity because he believed that the Apostle Paul just took Christianity from Plato. so, uh, and Adams also obviously was uh, held that view as well. So he's talking about the fabrication of the Christian trinity by uh, by certain people. Here is the most outrageous thing i uncovered in 20 some years of researching this. Here's what Adams says concerning the trinity. Had you and I, he's talking to Jefferson again, had you and I been 40 days with Moses on Mount Sinai and admitted to behold the divine Shekinah, in other words, God himself. And they're told that one was three and three one. We might not have had the courage to be- deny it, but we could not have believed it. We could not have believed the doctrine. We should be more likely to say in our hearts, whatever we might say with our lips, this is chance there is no god no truth this is all delusion fiction and a lie or it is all chance wow so in other words if he's on mount sinai and god himself tells him the trinity is true he still wouldn't believe it that's how vehemently he opposed the notion of christ as god and the trinity wow um and then what about the incarnation an incarnate god an eternal, self-existent, omnipresent, omniscient author of this stupendous universe suffering on a cross, my soul starts with horror at the idea, and it has stupefied the Christian world. It has been the source of almost all the corruptions of Christianity. Hmm. Now, what's he talking about here, the corruptions of Christianity? Adams and Jefferson were both very influenced by a guy named Joseph Priestley. Joseph Priestley is actually known in the science world as sort of the discoverer of oxygen. Um, but aside from that, he was also a, a sort of itinerant minister. He had his own church, and he was kicked out uh, by, his, by his people because of his um, beliefs. But he wrote uh, a two-volume work called "The Corruptions of The History of the Corruptions of Christianity." And, in the, and he lists there and goes into all of what he calls the corruptions of Christianity, and he starts with the deity of Christ, then he talks about uh, 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 original sin, and he just goes through the atonement, and all of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, all the doctrines that your listeners would find in their doctoral statement at their church, those to him are all corruptions of Christianity, because real Christianity is the moral teachings of Jesus. Hmm. The moral teachings of Jesus. And that's where Adams and Jefferson are as well. Um, they they reject virtually all of the, uh, the fundamental doctrines of biblical Christianity. And so that's what is referenced there too, is too. What about the Bible? Adams said philosophy, which is the result of reason, is the first, the original revelation of the creator to his creature, man. No subsequent revelation, supported by prophecies or miracles, that is the Bible, can supersede it. And again, this is in the Christmas Day letter. Hmm. No subsequent revelation, that is after philosophy, supported by prophecies or miracles, that's the Bible, can supersede it. Elsewhere, he said, the Bible is the most Republican book in the world, and therefore I will still revere it. But that's about the level of his reverence now or, what does he
0: mean he doesn't mean the party republican no right? he
1: doesn't he means that it supports re- republican political principles hmm. um principles uh such as um uh, rulers who are accounted, accountable to the people
2: private property freedom so on and so forth hmm. um and he also says this the preamble to the laws of Zeleucus, which were
1: supposedly handed down from the goddess Athena to the ancient Greeks, is as orthodox as Christian theology as Priestley's. And he agrees with Priestley's theology. Um, So the ancient Greek religion is as orthodox theologically as Christian theology, according to Adams. And then he says, where is to be found theology more orthodox or philosophy more profound than the introduction to the Shastra, which is a Hindu text. And then he says, these doctrines in the and the, the Shastra, sublime, if ever there were any sublime, Pythagoras learned in India, taught them to Zeleucus and his other disciples, all ended in heaven if they became virtuous. Wow. And this is the basis of how you get to heaven, is by being good, which brings a, and and notice this. The Hindu text, the Shastra, is just as orthodox. There's no better theology than there. Um, But then how do you get to heaven? My religion is founded upon the love of God and my neighbor and the duty of doing no wrong, but all the good I can. I believe, too, in a future state of rewards and punishments, but not eternal. What a number of these theistic rationalists believed was that there is a hell and bad people go there. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell, but they're working on in hell until eventually they make it into heaven. So, yeah, so sort of like the Catholic notion of purgatory. And then he says, I believe that all good men are Christians. That's the bottom line. The bottom line is being good. And he even said, placing all religion in grace and its offspring faith is anti-christianity because christianity is the moral teachings of jesus that cause you to be good cause you to be a good person and then in a letter to his wife he said my religion you know is not exactly conformable to that of the greatest part of the christian world it excludes superstition Hmm. and by that he means some supernatural and miraculous things so um So there's some uh, examples from John Adams. And some of my friends, I have colleagues who disagree with me and write different, who write different books. (laughs) And we have nice discussions and debates and whatnot, but they regularly, because Adams went to a congregational church, they list him as as reformed, and they Mm -hmm. list him as a Christian. But in reality, by his own account, his church turned Unitarian when he was still in a college age. So it's, it retained the name congregational, but it didn't retain the theology of congregationalism. And so those one of the problems that you have in this is a lot of people, they just look at denominational affiliations. Hmm. In fact, there's one book in which the table of contents is the, the 55 framers at the Constitutional Convention and their denominational affiliations. And some people take that and they say, see, they are all Christians because they are all affiliated, but they don't talk about what they actually believed or what those what those denominations or the churches they went to taught. One of the things I do in my book is I go through uh, this what seminary training was like at that time period and how in the seminaries they weren't teaching the bible anymore they were teaching enlightenment rationalism hmm. and so they came out in fact people don't know that yale was started because of complaints about the ministers that that the churches were getting out of harvard oh wow and harvard Harvard was created by the puritans the trained ministers but uh by the time you get into the 1700s early 1700s as a matter of fact um, congregations were complaining that the ministers didn't believe the gospel. And uh, so they started Yale to fill that gap. And within ten to twenty years it went the same went the same way down the route of rationalism. So you can't just look at denominational affiliations and draw you know those types of conclusions. you got to, if you want to know what they actually believed, you've got to get into what they actually said that they believed. Wow, yeah. And I guess that's not too
0: different than today, too. I mean, you still see people who associate loosely with denominations who kind of reject some of the core teachings of those denominations. Now,
1: or the churches have moved away from what the core teachings of the denominations right. are, which is what happened here as well.
0: Yeah. Now, now I have to ask you, I mean, that was super helpful to go through Adams. And obviously, you wrote a whole book. Uh, really dissecting a lot of these founding fathers and going into their personal correspondence. Now I have to ask you, otherwise my wife will be upset with me. I have to ask you about George Washington. So is he, so tell me the truth. Just give it to me straight, like Christian or not a Christian.
2: All right. Let me, let me do a little game here. Identify the Christian president. Okay. All right. And
1: Um, let's see if I can get it to come up a piece at a time. No, it's not going to work. So I usually draw up up a piece at a time and it makes it more effective. But uh, President A was a Baptist who claimed to be a Christian, took communion publicly and actually got in trouble for that and had an advisory council of evangelical ministers. President B was an Episcopalian, never claimed to be a Christian, refused to take communion and was publicly chastised by his minister because of it. And his advisors all denied the fundamentals of Christianity, which is which. And the second one is George Washington. The Baptist, who claimed to be a Christian, took communion publicly, had advisory council of evangelical ministers. That's Bill Clinton. Wow. The Episcopalian, who never claimed to be a Christian, who refused to take communion and was publicly chastised by his minister because of it, and his advisors denied the fundamentals of Christianity. That's George Washington. Wow. So. Let's, let's talk about some of, about Washington. Unlike Adams and even Jefferson, Washington never claimed to be a Christian. We have 20,000 pages of his writing and he never claimed to be a Christian, nor did he ever claim to have a relationship with Jesus or to have been converted. In fact, on March 3rd, 1797, A group of clergymen tried to get him to affirm whether he was a Christian or not. They tried to trick him into answering the question, but they were frustrated when Washington refused to do so. And one of them said, the old fox was too cunning for us. So even when they tried, ministers tried to trick him into saying he was a Christian, he wouldn't do it. So what about Washington? He never took communion. So he was publicly chastised for his bad example, and after he did, he never attended a sacrament Sunday. So uh, James Abercrombie, who was the assistant rector of Washington's church, once one week chastised Washington from the pulpit for his bad example. In not taking communion now Washington's wife Martha would stay for communion and and the way the church ran it is you had a service and then, if you wanted you stayed and took communion. And Martha would stay but Washington and his granddaughter Nellie Custis would leave this is all in her report of what happened Nellie Custis. Um, And so, Dr Abercrombie chastised him Washington sent him a letter which i've read. In which he said, "You were you were quite right to punish uh, to chastise me. I am setting a very bad example. It won't happen again," and so he just didn't attend on sacrament Sunday. Um, and then the bishop William White, who was the overseer of the local church, is also uh, testified to this as well. Now, I'm going to give you a number of things. That, does the fact that he never took communion automatically, absolutely mean that he wasn't a believer? No, but it means that he wasn't obedient to one of the sacraments that believers are supposed to take. And why was he so adamant adamant about refusing to do it? That's an interesting question.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, he spoke of Christians in the third person. He said, being no bigot myself to any mode of worship, I am disposed to indulge the professors of Christianity that road to heaven, which to them, shall seem the most direct, plainest, easiest, and least liable to exception. Now, we got to explain a couple of things here. The word bigot in the 18th century, one of the things that you have to do also that other people, when they're doing these things, they don't translate 18th century language into our language, and they give people wrong impressions. So bigot here just simply means someone who has a firm commitment to a doctrine, a firm commitment to something in this case, religion. And he says he's no bigot to any mode of worship. Okay? Hmm. So he doesn't have any commitment to any particular mode of worship, but he's disposed to allow professors of Christianity, that doesn't mean a professor like me, that means people who profess Christianity, the road to heaven, which to them seems Most direct, plainest, easiest, and least liable to exception. This is because Washington believed in multiple roads to heaven. These theistic rationalists believed that there were various roads or or ways to get to heaven. And so he said, I'm not a bigot to any type of mode. I don't have a particular commitment to any type of worship. But people who believe in Christianity, I'm inclined to let them believe what they want and take the easiest road to heaven that they can find. Um, he studiously avoided mentioning the name of Jesus. In twenty thousand plus pages of his writings, there's only one reference to the word Jesus, Jesus Christ, or Christ. And that reference is not in his handwriting. and is not accepted by as Washington's by the Smithsonian or the Washington Papers Project. It was written by an aide of his who was a Christian. He had an aide. Who was a Christian, and sometimes the aide would put Christian language in what in speeches or or communicates that he was sending out, and then Washington would change it. For example, um, I mentioned before this concept of God words in the Declaration of Independence. Washington always used God words in place of any term specific to Christianity, the Bible, or any other religion. Words like divine hand or author or things like that, or providence. For example, in a speech to Indian leaders that were written by this Christian clerk, he crossed out the word God and substituted the great spirit above. Now, why did he do that? Because to the Indian leaders, they view God as the great spirit above. And to him, it doesn't matter because God can have a bunch of different names. Um, it's It's not the Christian God. It's not the triune God of the Bible. It's not Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. And so you can substitute other names, and it doesn't matter if that's what helps the Indians um, you know think about God. Um, I don't know if I want to go down this road too much, but his use of God words and his belief that all roads lead to God are best understood when one remembers that Washington was an enthusiastic Freemason. Now, those who, push the Christian America idea will tell you that Washington, yeah, he was technically a Freemason, but he didn't ever do anything with it. Well, he laid the Capitol cornerstone in a Masonic apron with a Masonic trowel. His favorite portrait of himself was, his, was him in his um, Masonic regalia. And there is a George Washington Masonic memorial including uh, the chair that he sat in as the master of the Alexandria Lodge. So he was more than casually a Mason. And I don't want to get into the whole Mason conspiracy thing. I always tell people, don't come up afterwards and tell me about the dollar bill or anything like that. I've seen all of that, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe any of that stuff.
0: Oh, you're going to be getting lots of
1: emails now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but he and Franklin were, he and Franklin were Masons. Uh, there's not a conspiracy by Freemasons to take over the world, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't, it, that's not the thing. That's not the important thing. The thing is, Freemasonry had certain religious beliefs, and they fit squarely with what Washington and Franklin believed. Freemasonry holds to a unitary supreme being, the so-called great architect of the universe, It denies Christ's unique saviorship and atonement. It reduces religion to a moralistic observance of allegedly common ethical principles. Everyone meets together and pray and worship together to the same one and only indivisible God whom all religions acknowledge and venerate. And you you still see that today in the prayer meetings that they have, congressional prayer meetings and White House prayer meetings and so forth, in which everybody can go. Everybody can participate. It doesn't matter what God they worship. Uh, It's the same notion. Some other things about Washington, he also steadfastly refused to kneel in prayer. Oh, well, people will say, well, that doesn't mean he's not a Christian. I don't kneel in prayer either. Well, this was the custom in his church. It was expected. If you go and see the churches, you'll, you'll find kneeling benches there because everybody was expected to kneel in prayer. So here's a six foot three guy in an age in which the average male was five, eight at best, mostly five, six or so. Uh, John Adams was barely five foot, and he's six foot three, and he's standing while everybody else is kneeling. Um, but it, more importantly, it puts the lie to one of the the sort of famous stories about Washington and, and being in prayer at Valley Forge. And everybody, uh, not everybody, there's a lot of portraits out there, right, of Washington next to his horse kneeling at uh, at Valley Forge in the snow. But the man who was supposed to have found Washington kneeling in Prairie Valley Forge, a farmer named Isaac Potts, reported that he was nowhere near Valley Forge in 1777 when it supposedly happened. He moved there near the end of the war. This was one of many stories concocted by a guy named Mason Locke Weems or Parson Weems, who when Washington died, he wrote a hagiography, that means a glowing biography that exaggerates things, he wrote a glowing biography of Washington, which is the source of a number of the Washington myths, like the cherry tree story. That's where that comes from. And some of the other things that are that are said about Washington, like the Indians supposedly trying to kill him and they couldn't kill him and those kinds of things. Those are or my favorite, when I visited Mount Vernon, when I knew I was going to Washington, DC to speak at a conference, I made sure I carried a silver dollar with me so that I could stand on the shore of the Potomac River in front of Mount Vernon. And I had my wife take a photograph of me ready to throw because I was going to throw the silver dollar across the Potomac, which Mason Locke Weems said Washington did. And if you look at the picture, you'll see the Potomac there is a mile wide. So the idea that Washington threw the silver dollar across the Potomac is not very likely. It's actually based on a true story. He and another friend were competing for the affections of a young lady when he was young, and he bet that the other guy that he could skip a rock across the Rappahannock River, which was about a hundred yards across. So skipping a rock a hundred yards turned into throwing a silver dollar a mile. Uh, and these are the stories that Mason Locke Weems uh, created. When we were standing where, in the bedroom where Washington died, everybody's looking at the bed and I'm at the ceiling. My wife said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm looking at how well they patched the ceiling because Mason Locke Weems said that the angels came down and pulled him up. and." Directly into heaven. Uh, so <laughs> you have all of these mythical stories that that people have now taken and you know made portraits. You know, there's even a Washington at Valley Forge memorial somewhere that uh, you know celebrates on a big iron doors and so forth. But it's just made up. Um, mm-hmm. Bishop White, who was one of the one of the ministers and churches that Washington attended at various times, said this on his death. I do not believe that any degree of recollection will bring to my mind any fact which would prove General Washington to have been a believer in the Christian revelation. Or Reverend Samuel Miller, who was the pastor of another church that Washington attended on occasion, how was it possible for a true Christian to die without one expression of distinctive belief or Christian hope? Wow. Now, these guys have no reason to sully... <laughs> The memory of this great man, and they had great respect for him and so forth, they're just telling the truth, truth that people don't want to hear. Um, and, and and then I go into why people say and so on and so forth. but yeah. um, so there's some there's some things um, about Washington, and I'm not trying to sully his reputation either. I'm a list person. My students know I'm a list person. I have lists for everything. Um, and one of my lists is the 10 Greatest Americans. And on my list of the 10 Greatest Americans, George Washington is numbers one through five, <laughs> literally. And so I, I think Washington was a great man, but I don't think he had to be a Christian in order to be a great man or to make great contributions. And neither do the others. Um, and so.
0: Yeah, that, that brings up a point, actually. I, I appreciate you walking us through that, because I think a lot of people don't have the time, energy, or even know where to look to find a lot of these resources. So now they know your book is a great resource to be able to go and, and read some of these quotes. Uh, I, so I thank you for bringing that out, but on a on a bigger scale then, and I'll have a follow-up question to this too, but just on the immediate level, you, you mentioned you know your great appreciation for Washington, even though it doesn't look like he was a genuine believer. And so I guess, when we're looking back at history specifically at the founding fathers a lot of them did amazing great things but at the same time some of those quotes that you gave from from adams uh th- th- those are heart wrenching to a christian right and so so how, how do we balance that i think uh as believers
1: well i think maybe the easiest way to look at it is to look at isaiah 45 1. There, jesus or excuse us, there Isaiah is, uh, talks about Cyrus. Cyrus was a Medo-Persian, a Medo a ruler of what becomes Babylon and so forth. He's a, he's a pagan. Uh, he's not a believer in Yahweh. He's not a, he, he's not a uh, you know, converted or anything. He's a, he's a pagan ruler. And there God refers to him, Yahweh refers to him as my anointed my anointed and the word anointed there in the hebrew is the word from which we get messiah and so we have to understand that god works through pagan people through unbelievers as well as believers look at nebuchadnezzar uh there's there's a number of examples in scripture uh scripture alone but then if you just go through history there are lots of quote great people who aren't as great as John the Baptist, as as Jesus said, but a lot of great people who accomplish great things. And God uses them to advance his plan. And they don't have to be believers to be used to advance his plan. He uses all sorts of people, uh, often against their will. Uh, God, you might recall, in the Old Testament used a donkey at one point. To advance his plan and to get the attention of another guy and whatnot. And so the idea that that everybody has to be a Christian, or we can't respect them, or they can't accomplish anything or contribute anything, I just think is silly. Um and if that's the case, you shouldn't fly in an airplane, you shouldn't use a cell phone, etc., because there were pagans who invented those things. And uh and so God uses believers, but he also uses unbelievers. Uh and the scripture has a as like i say a number of examples of that all the way through
0: no, i think that's that's so great and i think too it's it's a great advice especially in light of the cancel culture that's always you know being pressed on us now where if you don't agree with somebody 100% you know you need to tear down their statue you need to you know refuse to recognize them at all i think that that is a huge shame and a blight on our society when we allow that kind of thinking
1: yeah, that's, one of the, that's an oh. example of what we always say, that the perfect is the enemy of the good. Hmm. If you're always looking for what's perfect, then you're willing to pass up what's really good because, and just keep working toward the perfect, which you're never going to achieve because you're a human being.
0: Right. Yeah, no, that's that's so good. So on a big scale, then, obviously, you've studied this. I have no idea what this answer might be. What Do you have any idea what kind of percentage we're talking about? What what? percentage of the founding fathers would have been genuine believers versus, you know, these theistic rationalists?
1: No, uh, I don't. Um, and I don't think anybody does. Some people try to sort of make estimates, but unless you actually are. Right, so here's the deal. The way people make percentages and so on and so forth is by using denominational affiliations and that kind of thing. And I could do that. I could do that in 20 minutes. You know, That's easy but what do they actually believe? And we all know, or you, you and our audience know, that that isn't what makes a Christian. Going mm-hmm. to a certain church does, isn't, doesn't make you a Christian. It's what you believe that makes you a Christian. And so unless you get in to find out what people believe, that's why, you know, I, 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 that's why I always make it clear to people, I'm not making claims for all the founding fathers. And anybody who does is selling you snake oil. Because you can't make valid claims about all the founders. I'm talking about the eight guys that I studied, who are arguably, I think, the most important. But if I were to if I were to extend it to nine people, the ninth one was an Orthodox Christian, Roger Sherman, hmm. uh, and so, and th- and I would name a couple other guys. I'm pretty confident were Orthodox believers. John Jay. Who was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and one of the three authors of the Federalist Papers, John Witherspoon, uh, as well. So you, at least Roger Sherman, John Witherspoon, John Jay. There are others as well who were who seem to be clearly um, born again believers, Christians in a biblical sense. But I would I wouldn't want to make a generalization without getting in depth and studying all of the various people, but my sense is, it's just a sense, I'm not making a generalization, my sense is that many of them were part of Christendom. Um, America, like Europe, was Christendom, in which people loosely held to biblical principles, especially morals, especially morality, which by the way, gets us back to the theistic rationalist thing, for the theistic rationalists, the purpose of religion is to promote morality, to make good citizens. Benjamin Franklin famously said once of one minister, uh, he loved to go to churches and, and visit different churches and sit and listen. And he said of one minister that he didn't have much use for him because he he was more interested in making people good Presbyterians than making them good citizens. Wow, and. Uh, If you read Washington's Farewell Address, it's about religion and morality. That's That's a common phrase that's used in conjunction with one another all the way through the theistic rationalist writings. Religion and morality, religion and morality, religion and morality. The purpose of religion was to promote morality. Why? Because they're creating a new system of government that is based on freedom. And it doesn't have an iron fist at the top to make people behave. So how do you get people to behave in a free society? And the answer is morality, Hmm. morality and education. But religion gets you morality. And it doesn't matter, they say this, it doesn't matter what religion, they all teach morality. And so that's what, and that's why I argue, that's why they allowed freedom of religion in the constitution Because to them, it doesn't, the the particular system, like Washington said, they weren't bigots to any particular system. They they didn't have a firm doctrinal stance. And so as long as it's religion, they wanted to promote religion, but not specific religions.
2: Hmm. Wow. And by
1: the way, let me just say this too. For the... The, those on the left who talk about a wall of separation and whatnot—that's total. That's totally foreign to the founders, totally foreign to the framers of the Constitution. They did. They—that's far from what they wanted. I just, I just mentioned Washington's farewell address, talking about religion and morality are the pub are the supports of public life. They're the public supports of the system. They wanted religion in public life. They didn't want to separate it or ban it from public life. They wanted it just not a religion, not a particular religion, but they wanted a religion, but they left it to the states and to the local governments. Uh, The national government was not to be involved because it would create a religion and put that in charge. They just wanted religion to have an influence in public life, but left it to the states to do whatever they wanted.
2: Hmm.
0: Wow, that's that's so interesting. And yeah, I, I feel like I could talk about this all day, but I know your time's precious, so I guess I just have a couple. Uh, maybe they're shorter questions. Having gone through all your studies on the founding fathers, any particular founding father that you kind of have a affinity with, or that you you know just really value? Obviously, you mentioned Washington is one through five on your uh, list there. Yeah, so yeah.
1: he is. That's on the base of merit, not my favorite. Um, my favorite is actually Alexander Hamilton. Hmm. Now, Hamilton is, of course, popular again now, and I'm so happy for the, I, I don't like the musical, um, and I don't like the whole concept of it, or and I don't like hip hop and so on. So that's not the, <laughs> but I am happy that it came to be because it saved Hamilton on the $10 bill. Hmm. They were going to remove Hamilton from the $10 bill. And put a woman on there, and now they're going to take Andrew Jackson off and and do that. So I like, I'm glad that it happened because I I'm a Hamilton fan just because of a couple of things. One, he's so brilliant. He's he's just really interesting to read. I can't stand reading John Adams. He's constantly whining and complaining that he won't get enough credit. That mm. Washington guy, the country bumpkin from Virginia, will get all the credit, and so on. It's just annoying to read Adams. Hamilton is for someone who likes prose Hamilton's really interesting to read and he's just he's just sharp he's really smart It's uh, the reason that that Washington put him on his staff when he was in his 20s and so forth uh, and the reason that even though he was born illegitimate to a woman who was largely a prostitute uh, he grew you know raised himself into these this great position because it was all on merit hmm. but also the interesting thing and I I like to talk about this too in my presentations of these eight guys, I believe that one of them is in heaven or will be in heaven. Um, and that's Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton was very much not a Christian when he was in power and so on. There, there are some very disturbing quotes and, and things. He also had a very uh, very famous comm- committing of adultery, mm-hmm. adulterous relationship and other things. So. When he was in power, very much not a Christian, later in his life, uh, when his son was killed in a duel, he began to reevaluate life and to rethink things. Um, And he started reading the Bible, and he started going back to things that he had learned in college when he was in college and other things. And ultimately, when when it comes to the end of his life, uh, when he fights the duel with Aaron Burr, the night before the duel with Aaron Burr, he writes two very poignant letters to his wife. And he says, uh, goodbye, and my, this is my paraphrase, goodbye, honey, I'm going to die tomorrow, have a nice life, take care of the kids. And uh, he, he spends two weeks before the duel putting all of his affairs in order. And also, it was the practice of that time, because dueling was illegal by that time. If you shot someone in a duel, you could be charged with murder. Hmm. Uh, and so, so the honorable men came up with this kind of goofy system in which you would go to the duel, hold your, take your weapon, stand back to back one paces, turn, and then point your gun up into the air and fire in the air instead of shooting the other guy. Because that would be dishonorable to, to break the law. And so you would show that you're putting your life in jeopardy because the other guy could shoot you and you would fire into the air. And so uh, Hamilton, before the, before the duel, said, I'm going to do the honorable thing, and I'm going to discharge my gun in the air. However, I'm quite sure I've correctly assessed the, I'm paraphrasing again, I've correctly assessed the character of Aaron Burr, which is that he doesn't have any character. <laughs> and so he's going to, in fact, shoot and kill me. Wow. And so I'm pretty confident I'm going to die. And he says the reason that he is doing that is because of Christian scruples. Now, that's an important thing to start with. That doesn't automatically mean anything, but it's important given it later what I'm going to say. So they get to the duel. They stand back to back. They walk to the 10 paces. They turn, and Hamilton fires first and fires his gun up in the air. Now, later, the Burr people claim that wasn't true. So Hamilton's um, second Uh, climbed a tree and dug the bullet out of the tree branch to prove that he had fired it up into the air. Burr then points his gun in the air and then lowers it and shoots Hamilton in the chest, and it's what they used to call a mortal wound, that is, he's going to die. So they drag him to a farmhouse, and he requests on his deathbed that a minister be sent to give him communion. Now Hamilton had never taken communion, he never belonged to a church his whole life, but he wants communion on his deathbed. He call, they call a minister, the minister says, "I don't believe you're a Christian, so I'm not going to give you communion." and he wow. leaves. I oh. want to meet that guy in heaven, yeah. by the way." And so, so ha- they call another minister, and uh, that minister comes and he says, "Well, in my denomination, we can't give communion to a single person. It has to be to a congregation. so I'm not going to give you communion either." and he leaves. So they call the first guy back because Hamilton says, I can convince him. They call the first guy back, and this guy records everything that they talked about and what Hamilton said, and it shows up in the newspaper. He published it in the newspaper. And it's an amazing explication of the gospel and how he is now putting all of his trust in in God and not himself and so on and so forth. And it's a really, really excellent confession of faith in christ on his deathbed and then he dies shortly after so hmm. i i choose to believe that hamilton had a deathbed confession hmm. just because i like him no not just because. <laughs> if, if this minister is to be believed then hamilton made a, a sincere deathbed confession wow yeah that's that's so neat so
0: uh i haven't seen the musicals but uh you know you're, you're motivating me to learn more about, uh, Alexander Hamilton. That's, that's really neat. So, no, that, that's really yeah, cool.
1: Skip, skip the part. <laughs>
0: yeah. Just read, read that. Does, um, do you have a favorite biography of Hamilton or something?
1: Uh, well, the, the classic is, um, and I'm going to have another senior moment. Uh, yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to email you.
2: Okay. Yeah. No um, worries.
1: I, it's, Uh, I'm having another senior moment. Yeah, no, that's okay. I can never remember my, uh, the books
0: either, but I don't know how many they were there. Um, so I guess the last question I would have would be besides your book, which obviously is heartily recommended, uh, on the founding fathers, I'll put the link in the, in the description for the podcast episode here too. So people can check it out and buy it on Amazon. Uh any any other tips or recommendations or resources for studying Christianity in early America or anything like that?
1: Yeah, the the two books I always recommend, and neither of them is in print anymore, so you have to get them on a used book site. Um, but there are plenty of used book sites. Um one is called The Search for Christian America. The Search for Christian America. And it's written by three guys: Mark Knoll, Nathan Hatch, and George Marsden. And in some ways, my book was kind of an answer to their book because in their book they raise certain questions that I decided I was going to try and answer. But they they do a good job on on this overall um, uh, the overall picture. They are they in fact try to do a search for Christian America. Is this what uh, what can we find? Is is this is this right? And and they come to the same conclusion that I do that it's not. Mark Nola's pretty well known in the Christian community as the, the foremost, uh, Christian historian. Hmm. And, um, and this is one of his better works in my opinion. Um, and then there's a really obscure book. I think it's self-published. Um, but I, I think it's really good. It's called in God, we don't trust hmm. in God. We don't trust provocative and, title. Yes uh it's by david burco b e r c o t um and the, the the substance of the title it's all about the american revolution and how the american colonists did not trust god and that's why they rebelled hmm. and so that's where the title comes from it's it's saying on behalf or in the place of the american colonists at the time in god we don't trust so we need to rebel and um uh, so it's really good. Uh it's good kind of for homeschoolers and stuff too because it's not written on a really high level and and it and it kind of explains a lot of things and and it looks at things from a
2: biblical perspective. And so um so I like it. it it's but yeah. Um so those are a couple
1: of things that that I would recommend in that sense.
0: Yeah, that's so great. Yeah, that that's really helpful. Well, I think that that'll wrap up our, our uh, episode for today. I just want to say, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of uh, positive feedback. This has been so helpful, and I'm really thankful that you would join us. This has been, this has been incredible and a, a really great uh, deep dive into the Founding Fathers. Thanks for
1: being with us. Thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed it.
0: Well, a special thanks to Greg Frazier for joining us on today's episode. I had a great time, and I'm sure you did too, learning some things that perhaps you hadn't known before. I just am thankful for his research. I'll put the links to his books in the description of the episode below so you can check that out. And if you have any comments, questions, or thoughts on the episode, you can reach out to me through the contact form on my website. You can also find out more about Shepherd's Theological Seminary at shepherds.edu. Until next time, May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.